As the House moves closer to a historic vote to impeach Donald Trump, the Justice Department's Inspector General throws a stink bomb for all sides in the controversy over the president's conduct. Michael Horowitz's massive nearly 500-page report exploring the origins of the FBI's Russia investigation was not what anybody was expecting or wanting to read. For the president's critics, the early headlines seemed great. The IG found there was no political bias that prompted the Bureau to launch Crossfire Hurricane, and that the probe was justified given the low threshold needed to initiate such an investigation. In that sense, the president's claims that he was the victim of a witch hunt or a deep state coup was nonsense, as most of us assumed all along. But, and it's a big but, the IG also laid out a blistering indictment of the FBI's conduct, accusing officials of, quote, serious performance failures, misstating some key evidence, and concealing exculpatory facts when it sought a secret surveillance warrant against one of Trump's campaign advisors. Not only that, the FBI dispatched informants to secretly record at least three Trump campaign officials and used a routine intelligence briefing for the then-candidate to gather potentially incriminating evidence, all without any approval from the Justice Department. It was not the vindication ex-director James Comey and his top aides had been hoping for. What went wrong? We'll discuss with Mary McCord, who served as the acting assistant attorney general for national security when Crossfire Hurricane was getting off the ground and on paper was one of its supervisors. And we'll talk to Peter Bergen, one of the shrewdest national security writers around, about his new book about the strained relationship between Donald Trump and his generals on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, the uh, moment uh, seems to be coming inexorably. President Trump is being impeached. The House Judiciary Committee is voting to send two articles to the floor of the House next week. And uh, Trump will join the illustrious company of Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton as one of only three presidents to actually be impeached. Richard Nixon, of course, resigned before the full house had an opportunity to do so. And in that sense, it is historic. But there have been times over the last week or so when hearing people talk about this being a historic moment, it just doesn't feel as historic as, as maybe it should. And I think the ultimate impeachment articles that have now been voted on by the Judiciary Committee two articles, one of them is abuse of power and the other one is obstruction of Congress, feels a little smaller than I think I would have expected. In fact, I think the Wall Street Journal referred to it as the incredible shrinking impeachment. I agree. Uh, there's just It doesn't seem to have the weight 
that the testimony and the conduct of Donald Trump justifies. For one thing, there's no allegation of criminal conduct by the president. We heard all that talk about bribery and extortion and other and campaign finance violations, other you know, potential crimes, but the article speaks of the sort of more amorphous notion of abuse of power. Now, I think most people will agree that the Trump's comments to President Zelensky of Ukraine were an abuse of his office yeah, by I, I, demanding that or requesting that investigation of his political rival, the uh, Joe Biden. But still, this is different than Clinton and Nixon, and to some extent Johnson as well, because Although Johnson was the Tenure of Office uh, Act. He violation of the Tenure the, of Office Act, which I think later was ruled to be unconstitutional. And it wasn't and, a criminal statute, yeah. but it was a violation of law, an alleged violation of law. With Nixon, you had clear obstruction of justice. Talk of hush money payments, you know, blocking a uh, interfering with a uh, FBI investigation, and with Clinton, it's perjury. Right. Look, um, I, I would make a distinction between the first article abuse of, of office. That one, I think, is, you know, has a lot of gravity to it, is very serious, is a is an undermining of national security, an undermining of the Constitution, an undermining um, of the electoral, the integrity of the electoral process, and all for Trump's personal political benefit. That is yeah, no, it's a corrupt, serious misconduct. That is a corrupt act. Right. Obstruction of Congress, that's the one um, that, you know, I think leaves me uh, a little un underwhelmed uh, because at the end of the day, we have a system with co-equal co branches in which uh, the executive and the Congress are always fighting with each other and disagreeing. And it ends up often getting litigated in the courts in this particular case, uh, while I think you know, Congress is right, and Trump should not have given orders for no one to cooperate. You know, ultimately, the Democrats didn't litigate it, right? So there is no right. actual resolution of this. Right. No, I, I agree. And which I think is one reason why there was a lot of people in the progressive caucus of the Democrats who wanted this to be broader, who wanted to bring in obstruction of justice of the Mueller investigation as laid out in uh, Mueller's report, emoluments, a violation of uh, the constitutional prohibition on that by retaining his business. And Nancy Pelosi, in her infinite wisdom, decided, no, we're going to keep this narrow, we're going to keep it sweet, and we're going to do it quickly. And that's what it all comes down to. I mean, Nancy mm -hmm. Pelosi was to some extent, dragged into this uh, impeachment. Yeah. She didn't really want to do it. I think ultimately she decided that she had no choice and that it was probably the right thing to do. But if she was going to do it, she was going to do it as uh, quickly and simply yeah. as possible so that they could move on. And the big the big question mark for me, watch as we go into next week, is how many Democrats defect? It's now clear all the Republicans are going to vote against both of these articles. But and we had two Democrats who didn't vote to open up the uh, impeachment inquiry to begin with. But you got a bunch of others in Trump friendly swing districts, uh, freshman D's who were just elected, who, given what the polls are showing, are clearly getting nervous. So, you know, the, the question is, is it going to be a handful, right. less than a handful, or more right. than a if handful? It's, and if, if it's, it's single, more, if it's single digits, or yeah. if it's you know five or fewer, 
then I think the Democrats are okay. But if, if it's more than that, if you end up with 8, 10, 12 Democratic defections, they're not going to go into uh, the Senate trial with, uh, with a whole lot of momentum. I think it takes the wind out of their sails. Uh, I agree. But meanwhile, while all this is going on, we have this monster of a report from the Justice Department Inspector General that while it gave James Comey and his defenders some uh, good headlines to start, that there was no political bias by the FBI when it launched Crossfire Hurricane, the investigation into Trump campaign officials and their possible ties to Russia. Really, when you dig into the details, just reams out the Bureau for some really major screw-ups. We have covered a lot of these internal investigations into FBI conduct, whether it's remember the old mm. FBI lab or Ruby yeah, Ridge right. or you know how many of these have we done? This one, in some ways, I think may be the most devastating for the Bureau and for the Bureau leadership. So yes. let's get to it. We've got a great guest. Absolutely. Mary McCord, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. I'm uh, glad to be here. So a lot to talk about with this IG report, which bottom line, the uh, Michael Horowitz, the inspector general, after this massive investigation, million documents, uh, well more than a year, concludes that there were serious performance failures at the FBI in the foreign intelligence surveillance warrant for Carter Page basic and fundamental errors that raise significant questions regarding the FBI's chain of commands, management, and supervision of the FISA process. As acting AG for national security, you were in charge of the FISA process. How did this happen? So acting AAG, important distinction, AG would be the top of the entire department. Right, right, I would I'm have sorry. loved that opportunity, A- but acting, I did not get that opportunity. Acting <laughs> assistant, yes. Right. And also, also just to clarify, because I was in an acting capacity and not a presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed assistant attorney general, I was not responsible for signing the FISAs. That right. had to go up to someone who was presidentially Reviewing appointed. Reviewing them, but, not, but you couldn't sign them. Correct, right. yes. And I had the very capable Stu Evans, the deputy attorney, assistant attorney general, General over the Office of Intelligence, who was the primary contact within the department, primary high-level contact, I would say, within the department, reviewing the Office of Intelligence's work on that FISA. So the Office of Intelligence is the office within the National Security Division that is filled with the lawyers who actually do the FISA application. And they do that based on information provided to them by the FBI. Formerly known as OIPR. Correct. correct? Okay, we're, you know, Justice Department junkies here. A little overly wonky, (laughs) even for us. Um, Anyway, back to my question. How could this have happened? So there are a number, as you pointed out, a number of deficiencies in terms of the information that was provided by the FBI to the Office of Intelligence and to the Department of Justice. And It seems probably crazy to most readers or listeners that there could be mistakes in something as sensitive as this. And I don't want to belittle these mistakes at all because they are serious and important. And I think and I agree with all of the OIG's recommendations and I agree with Christopher Ray's recommendations. And as a person on the receiving end of the FBI's information, I'm, of course, very disappointed that despite how much we pressed to make sure that we had everything that could possibly be considered exculpatory, 
included in that FISA, it now appears that not all of that was provided. Having said all of that, these things happen when law enforcement has to come to lawyers to get an investigative tool unlocked for them. And what I mean is I was a federal prosecutor for 20 years before I was at the National Security Division. And in in many ways, there's a love-hate relationship, I think, between law enforcement and prosecutors, because prosecutors stand in the way between law enforcement and this thing they want to do. Kind of like how editors stand in the way of (laughs) reporters, right? Yes. (laughs) And so law enforcement, to get a search warrant in a criminal case, right, has to have that signed off on by a prosecutor before they can go to the judge to take multiple different types of investigative steps to include in the counterintelligence world, obtaining a FISA, you have to go through an attorney. That means the law enforcement is at the mercy of the attorney, but the attorneys are also at the mercy of the of law enforcement because law enforcement are the people who actually have the information. And I will tell you in the course of my almost 25 years at the Department of Justice, mistakes happen. There are times when I've signed search warrants and I've found out later and any criminal defense lawyer will tell you this too, that there would be an omission or a mistake in the applications. And I think it happens for three reasons. The worst reason, of course, is bad faith. A law enforcement officer who knows something is afraid that if they tell the prosecutor that or the attorney that, that they won't get their warrant, right? Bad faith. Another is just mistake. Like the law enforcement just doesn't Think of something, there's multiple law enforcement officers involved and they haven't put all their information together and some information doesn't get passed on. And third is failure to appreciate the relevance or significance of certain information. And that could be that the law enforcement agent has the information but doesn't think it's pertinent and doesn't share it. And so it could be any of okay. those. All right. So using that framework, mm-hmm. let's let's talk about some of the specific mistakes or omissions that were made. Mm-hmm. One of them, Mike and I have been talking about, is the FBI talking to Christopher Steele's main source mm-hmm. and the source saying, I didn't say those things. And that was not included. And, in- and just to put context on this, it was the Christopher Steele dossier, which made all sorts of allegations about the links between Trump and the Russians. That was the basis for the FISA warrant against Mm -hmm. Carter Page, one of his campaign advisors, because Steele had alleged that he had met with high ranking people close to the Kremlin, discussed the lifting of sanctions in exchange for the Russian support of Trump. Clear evidence of collusion, if true, it was the very basis played the central role to getting this surveillance warrant. And when the FBI went to check out that Steele dossier and talk to his primary source, the guy says, I didn't say that. That's a total embellishment. A lot of this was just gossip and bar talk. Now, that's not a trivial mistake. None of that gets reported to you at the Justice Department. None of that gets reported to the FISA court. That doesn't sound like a trivial mistake. Yes, I was very, very surprised that that type of information, which seems pretty obvious, I think, to anyone, that would be something that needs to be included in a FISA, particularly when that FISA application has been presented to a court, has relied on information, and now there is reason to believe that information might not be 100% accurate. If that information had been brought to your attention, what impact do you think it would have had on how you 
viewed the application as a whole. So there's two things, right? First, you would look at, should we even be still seeking a FISA, right? Does this undercut the probable cause to the level that we either no longer think we have probable cause, or we still think we have it, but it's thinner now, it's slimmer now, we're not as comfortable going to the court, and so we're just going to not even seek a renewal. That's would have been the first consideration. Uh, and then the second, if we concluded, and I say we because you, a single person probably wouldn't make this decision without talking with other attorneys, re-evaluating everything that was in the entire FISA, weighing it all and determining do we still have probable cause. If the decision was we still have probable cause, the Bureau still thinks it's worthwhile to seek this. They think that, they, that it will be productive going forward because that's always a consideration in renewal. Has it been productive in the past? Do we expect it to be productive going forward? Then the decision would be once you, uh, you, you absolutely positively must include that information for the court so that the court will have it and then the court can evaluate, ask questions, whatever it wants to do, because it will have to make its own assessment about the impact on probable cause. Another example, Carter Page apparently had a operational relationship with the CIA and was providing information to the CIA. According to the report, that was excluded from the FISA application, and it's relevant because he was apparently talking to Russians for the CIA, and yet the FBI is pointing to those contacts as potential evidence of some sort of relationship, relationship that he has with the Russians right. as opposed to the CIA. One of the FBI lawyers, we learned from the report, actually knew that, got an email from the CIA, and then instead of forwarding the information from the CIA, doctors the email and writes not a source for the CIA on Carter Page. That's the one that was the most shocking to me because we're talking about a lawyer altering a document. Like there's no explanation for that. That's a good explanation um, unless it was totally a mistake, like he meant to type something else. But even still, you don't doctor an email and and portray it as being an email from, you know, the the source that you're claiming wrote it. So, first of all, very shocking that an attorney at the Bureau would do that. And, of course, that's material information that should be included. If, if part of what the factual basis for the probable cause is are these contacts with Russians, and if, if any one of those contacts was done at the behest of or even just with the acknowledgement or approval of another intelligence agency, that's obviously information that's, that's critical and would actually, you know, not only would you consider – I mean, you'd have to consider a couple of things. If you're going to leave those contacts in, you're clearly going to have to explain this relationship. But I think more likely you just take those contacts out of the application completely because if they're undermined by the fact that at least some of them were done at the behest of or with the knowledge of a U.S. intelligence agency, then it no longer provides probable cause and there's no reason to So there to were so it. many examples of material information that were either misstated or concealed from the court. As the report says, this implicates the entire leadership of the FBI. And, you know, then we hear James Comey the day after or the day the report comes out saying he's been vindicated and calling out for the president to be apologizing to him. Who should be apologizing to who here? I think you're conflating two aspects of the report. No, but the, but the bulk of this report is a sort of blistering indictment of the way the FBI handled its most sensitive investigation that it was conducting. 
And it's totally botched. So the bulk of the report is about the handling of the very technical details about how FISA applications are made and how they're processed and that whole thing. One of the reasons the investigation was even undertaken, as you may recall, is because of calls for it by members of Congress, particularly members of Congress, who said this was all the result of political motivation and political bias, that the very opening of the investigation was politically motivated and that the Carter Page FISA also in particular was politically motivated. And this is back when we had dueling memos from Devin Nunes and and Adam Schiff. So I think it's important to remember that there's another conclusion reached in this report, which may or may not have been what James Comey was talking about, which is that there was no testimonial or documentary evidence to support that the investigation was opened for political reasons. And in fact, if it had been, I mean, the FBI, I hate to say this because, I mean, I have a lot of very good friends who are either former FBI or currently in the FBI, but they, you know, they do leak sometimes. And I think if there was a political motive here, you would have seen this investigation leaked before the uh, election, which of course did not happen. So I think that it's important. I agree. I don't know what percentage of the 400 and something pages are actually dedicated to this more details about how does the process work and the mistakes that were made. And that's important. And that's why Director Ray has come out and said, I agree that these mistakes needed need to be rectified and our processes need to be cleaned up. And he's made some 40 recommendations. All of that is very important. But I think we can't lose sight of the fact that one of the key sort of talking points coming out of the White House and out of the White House's backers is that the entire Russia investigation was politically motivated. And I think that's been debunked, at least in part by this. Mary, report. I want to go back to something that I asked before. Uh, and I know that hindsight is, is twenty twenty, but if these concealments and, and omissions, uh, if that hadn't been done and you had all of the information that you didn't have, would the Justice Department have applied for that FISA or for the renewals of that FISA? Your best ability to, to, to look back and answer that question. So what I haven't done is sit down and try to like put the FISA application that's public now, which is still heavily redacted. So I can't, you know, if I had the original FISA, I could set it down and I could look at this report and go through each one of the original uh, seven mistakes and then add on the 10 more. And I could answer that question. I haven't done that, so I can't answer it. But I can say this. It was already something, as the report indicates, that those of us at the Department of Justice knew was sensitive knew that if it was ever public, we'd be criticized for, ask questions about even if there's probable cause, is it worthwhile? Carter Page knows the FBI is interested in him. He's talked to them. He's written an open letter to James Comey saying, you know, why am I under an investigation? Or I'm a, So, you know, is it really worth it? And there's no question I can say unequivocally, those would have been even more serious discussions. So, so this is what I don't get. And it's really a question about Comey's conduct. How is it possible that an investigation that is, is this sensitive, investigating a nominee or a campaign for a, uh, you know the nominee for a, an American political party with an election looming, and they're talking about surveillance and very aggressive law enforcement techniques, how is it possible that Comey wouldn't have brought everyone together at the FBI, his leadership, and said, okay, this is an extremely sensitive investigation with enormous implications. We have to be very careful about all the decisions we make. We can't afford to make mistakes here. We have to dot 
all of our I's cross all of our T's. I don't get the sense that that happened. And furthermore, how is it possible that the attorney general, Loretta Lynch, didn't know that this was happening? That seems like she a knew, massive— According to the report, she didn't even know the investigation was going on. That a, seems like a, a massive a, leadership An failure. FBI counterintelligence investigation of a major party presidential candidate's campaign, and nobody briefs the attorney general? Well, no one at, and this, at DOJ knew at all when it got started. No one knew until after that, right? So no, Crossfire it hurricane, you didn't even know when the FBI launched the investigation. That's correct. Now— And that's within the rules— it's a, uh, yes, right? one but, of my responses is yeah. going to be... Are you shocked by that, that nobody even informs well, you who's in charge of the of what the FBI is doing in this area, that they're doing such a highly sensitive investigation? So, you know, I was surprised when I got my first full briefing on this that it was how long things had been going on before I got any briefing on it, when, when was I was that? still in the government. When was that? At the first, like, mm. I knew bits and pieces, but the first sort of soup to nuts briefing for me was not until January of 2017. And so obviously I knew about the Carter Page piece. I knew about individual pieces. I just didn't have a full briefing. So one of my responses is this: the rules have never contemplated this. And so technically, and, and the inspector general points this out, there was not any violation of a rule, but I think we all think that that's kind of crazy, that if you're going to investigate a sensitive matter like this, this ought to be something that's discussed all the way up at the highest levels of both the FBI and the Department of Justice. That said, a couple of things I think to keep in mind, which are very much of those sort of hindsight is 2020 types of things. One is that counterintelligence investigations are very unlike criminal investigations. There, there are all kinds of counterintelligence officer agents at the FBI who open all kinds of counterintelligence investigations. Oftentimes, Russia is a piece of this. So we have experts in Russia, counterintelligence operations. These are investigations that do not have to be cleared through DOJ because they are, they're not done in order to move toward potentially charging somebody with, with a crime. In fact, counterintelligence investigations will go on for years. The last thing they want to do is have a prosecutor say, oh, I think there might be a crime here. Let's, you know, indict a case because then that means, oh, my gosh, now we, we're going overt that we have an investigation and we're going to lose our counterintelligence. So just to set that level, set the stage there, it's it's just not uncommon for there to be counterintelligence investigations going on that DOJ attorneys don't know anything about. All right. I realize this is different because we're talking about a campaign, but realize also that as things get started, we also have had the situation, at least by July, where we've had the DNC hacks, we've had emails coming out, we have the WikiLeaks part of this, we have the, the whole intelligence community trying to figure out what's going on. You've had a president or a presidential nominee call for Russia to investigate uh, Hillary to find Hillary's emails. Right. Right. So yeah. you have you have a lot of things happening that summer. And just to be completely honest, I don't think very many people within the department and law enforcement actually expected Donald Trump to become the next president. And so they're thinking we have a counterintelligence investigation that is going to teach us about Russian interference in U.S. elections. And this is something that's important, not in not just in 2016, but in every single election going forward here and elsewhere. And so we're going to open this and we're going to run it and we're going to stay covert about it. And then what happens? He becomes the president. And so suddenly everything looks 
a lot crazier, honestly, than it otherwise did. And I'm not excusing it, but I'm just trying to maybe give a little bit of background about how maybe this could have kind of come to be. When did you first read this Steele dossier? On BuzzFeed, when BuzzFeed put it. Uh, so you had not seen it before. I had not. Had, had the FBI briefed you on it? No. So when you read it, did you ask some questions? So here, so this is something else that I think gets confused because particularly people like Congressman Nunes, who, who were constantly saying that the Carter Page FISA was based on this dossier. The term dossier didn't even exist in the rubric of the discussions of the factual basis of the predicate for the FISA. There's information, right? Information provided by different sources. No question, there was information included that was provided by Christopher Steele. And I was aware of that, as were others. And that's why we, you know, pressed on who was he, what, who was paying him for this. And these are all things we need to include and were included. But this idea of dossier is something that came up much later and included all kinds of stuff that is not in that FISA, right? All the salacious stuff, all the stuff that, you know, made the front pages and made it so popular on BuzzFeed had nothing to do with the information that Although was included it does, in the FISA. It, it does go to the credibility of the specific allegations that you're using in the FISA because well, if it's coming from a source who says, hey, I've got 15 things here I'm going to tell you about and then you discover that, you know, a bunch of them simply aren't true then it does raise questions about how much you rely on the other portions that you're using That's in true, the That's true, but what I'm saying to you is the rest of that wasn't presented, and I don't even think all of that was even written at the time of the Carter Page No, no, Bison, the, the, right? the, the P-tape was the very first one. But, that, that was the very first memo from right. Christopher well, Steele. I don't know that anyone at DOJ knew anything about that. <laughs> I mean, I certainly didn't. Well, and, the FBI did. Because it was, and that's what they were asking their primary subsource about. Again, we're yeah. getting our time, I think we're okay. getting our timelines mixed up here. So let me ask you something else that leapt out at me, which does go to the Justice Department or the relationship between the FBI and the Justice Department. They launch Crossfire Hurricane in the end of July of 2016. And then in early August or mid-August, they give the FBI as part of a strategic intelligence briefing for then-candidate Trump. And this FBI, going up to Bill Priestep, who's in charge of the investigation, decides they're going to send one of the agents in Crossfire Hurricane who's investigating the Trump campaign's ties to the Russians to that briefing as an investigative agent using the sort of routine briefing that every candidate gets as an investigative tool. And yet they never, as Horowitz points out, never consulted with anybody at the Justice Department about the wisdom or the risks of doing that. What's your reaction to the failure to brief you and others at the Justice Department about what they were and doing? And also, is it an appropriate and prudent investigative technique? So I think what that does is raise significant questions that there was not an opportunity to discuss um, because this wasn't presented to the department as something that should be discussed. The decision was made and, and was out the, without the knowledge of anybody at DOJ. I can't answer what the decision would have been if there'd been discussions, but I think this is the kind of thing that is unique 
and novel and certainly lawyers and even policymakers. I mean, this isn't all a legal question. I don't think legally you can't do it. I mean, there's not a bar to it legally, but as a policy matter and a policy quasi-legal matter, it raises a lot of questions as as you rightfully are pointing out and as, as the IG rightfully pointed out. And so those are the types of things that should have been just discussed. Like so many things we've already been talking about in this podcast, right? Things that the Bureau did not come discuss, maybe didn't even go up very high within its own own organization to discuss that now looks, you know, raises all kinds of alarm bells because of the sensitivity of the investigation. And part of that is the is the failure of there being any guidelines and then the failure of those who were involved to think, you know, this is just unusual enough that we should run this up the flagpole. It's interesting because the higher I got in government, the more I realized, you know, that if the buck was going to stop with me, I wanted some top cover. Yeah. So when I would... Uh, Wise move. Yeah, yeah. That's so, how you got high up in yeah. the government. Right. As opposed to being yeah. the risk taker who right. says, I'm just going to do this and worry later about where the chips might fall, I would say that's novel and interesting. And regardless of what my personal view is, I think I would like to s- discuss this with people above me um, and make but sure we get that's why by. this is a failure of leadership. Because when you get to be at those higher levels, mm-hmm. you know, to some extent you want like... You want to let the people underneath you be risk takers as long as you're supervising them and as long as you have the opportunity to assess those risks. That's right. And that's what didn't happen. And that, I think, is key here, right? And I, and, and I don't know enough, and I am going to admit I have not read every single one of the pages of these report. I haven't even read close. I've read excerpts, and I've read the executive summary, and I have more work to do. But even those leaders are also at the mercy of how much they're being told. And I don't know yet, and maybe you guys do because maybe you read those pages, how much they were being told and then not following up on or not thinking, oh, that's novel. Let's you know make a call over to the National Security Division or the, the Deputy Attorney General and, and chat this out. I don't know. I know that the IG says in his executive summary, we don't expect leadership to know every single detail the way the line folks would know them, but they have to be able to take enough responsibility to be able to ask all the right questions and to probe things and to get more information if they feel like things are looking a little bit. Another investigative technique they used was confidential informants who were wired to talk to a number of people involved in the Trump campaign, Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, and another unnamed senior campaign official. Same question, really. Was that an appropriate technique for the FBI to use in this context without consulting you and others at the Justice Department? I mean, technically, by the rules, there wasn't a requirement. I will say, though, that that's one of the things that I think is the most important. Well, I shouldn't say the most important. There's a lot of important things here. But this so there are all kinds of requirements for prosecutors to run things up the flagpole in sensitive circumstances. So, for example, before investigating any sitting elected official member of Congress, right, you have to get if, if you want to use a you know search warrant, standard investigative techniques in a criminal case, normally that a U.S. attorney's office can just do on their own, you can't in sensitive circumstances. You have to go all the way through Maine Justice and get approvals at very high level, the deputy AAG level, and if it's sensitive enough, even higher. And that will involve higher level people weighing, essentially, is this, first of all, not only do you have the proper predicates for it, but is it worth it here, right? It's a sensitive circumstance. So, 
to my, that's kind of the life I lived as a federal AUSA for 20 years and then moving over to Maine Justice is like, of course, these things have to go up the flagpole. Technically speaking, that didn't apply to candidates for office, including candidates for the presidency. So it seems kind of crazy now. It's a big gap. It's clearly going to be filled. I think there's no question about it. Should people have realized this is sensitive and sh- and go up? Yeah, I think they should have. It didn't happen. It didn't. I can guarantee if the if some of this had come over, some of this had come over to DOJ, there would have been a lot more discussions with DOJ and things would have gone up. So yes, I'm surprised about that. And yes, I think it should be different. I let think me, it will be different. Let me ask uh, you what this episode says about the kind of larger. FISA process. And specifically, we've been talking about how sensitive a case this was and that uh, because everyone involved must at some level have known that uh, a case like this would get more scrutiny than the sort of garden variety FISA, although most of them aren't really garden variety, I guess. But what does this say about all of those other FISA warrant applications in you know terrorist cases or national security cases that no one ever hears about? Should we expect that those cases are also, you know, that you see the same kinds of mistakes and omissions and, you know, rife with the same kind of errors that we saw in this case? No, I don't think so. But I, I am very concerned at what impact this report is going to have on the rest of the FISAs that are needed for very important um, national security purposes, including, you know, high on that list, counterterrorism purposes. I think that you know, as I indicated earlier, when I said mistakes do happen, there's a variety of reasons for them. Mistakes do happen. So I think that there's never a way to have a 100% perfect system. However, in some ways, cases that maybe aren't as significant as this might have fewer people involved, might have more ownership of a smaller number of agents, right, who are more deeply familiar with every single fact and, and circumstance of a particular target. And in a way, it might be easier and neater and cleaner in those cases that aren't as loaded. I know it sounds a little counterintuitive. I mean, it does bring up up the concern of civil libertarians that the FISA court, even with more recent reforms, is still essentially a secret court and that these applications are rubber stamped and that that is just dangerous for civil liberties and for our democracy. There, of course, is the danger of overcorrecting, I suppose. But is there a problem with the FISA system? And do we need and has this report, this investigation exposed problems that need to be reformed? And if so, what do you think are the most important ones? I mean, I definitely think it has exposed problems that need to be reformed. I will say that, you know, at DOJ, the attorneys in the Office of Intelligence, the attorneys who are responsible for the FISA applications, it is a very rigorous process. So when someone in the FBI seeks a FISA and they send over an early draft, it's not like, you know, it gets tinkered and the next day they go to the court. I mean, sometimes these things take weeks or even months of back and forth, seeking more information, probing more the probable cause, the sourcing, you know, all possible exculpatory information, all possible other things. A read copy goes over to the court. The court's own attorneys will ask questions and there's a back and forth. So these go through, like compared to a search warrant in criminal case, these have much, much more. But but wait a second, because mm-hmm. Mary, you said you were a prosecutor for, for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So you obviously dealt with a lot of Title III mm-hmm. uh, warrant applications. They're does not seem to be the same kind of problem in, in those cases, because that is an ad, that is subjected to the adversarial system, which this isn't. 
Doesn't that smoke out problems when you when you? When it's you ha- it's not subjected to the average serial system. Not when you apply for the T well, three. Not it's, when it's you apply. Sa- same but, but same it- as a search warrant. It's not so. Both of these are things that the prosecutors are seeking from the court without any but that, obviously without right, getting but that evidence to the can target. be suppressed if there's a problem with it. And the FISA can be suppressed. There is an entire procedure by which you must give notice in a criminal case of any intent to use FISA-derived information. And I get the process is a little different than it is uh, for search warrants or Title III's, and it's not uniform at all that you turn over the FISA. In fact, that doesn't happen generally, but it doesn't happen based on a court determination about it. And there's litigation. And the court of course, is entitled to see everything, ask all the questions the court wants to ask. The court can order it to be turned over. That's happened once before in Chicago, and that went up on appeal and eventually was reversed. But there is, I guess my main point is, there is an adversarial process. It's not exactly the same, but there isn't. So to the extent you're suggesting that it's the, it's the possibility of suppression in the future that deters misconduct, I would push back on that and say, I just don't think that that's the reason for any mistakes. And it's not because I don't think there's, it's not because I don't think risk of suppression is a is a deterrent, generally speaking. But I think that when you're talking about FISAs, you're talking about that something was applied for, not for criminal purposes. It's always applied for for foreign intelligence collection purposes. Well, that wall between FISA and criminal seems is not what it was. Post no, there's 9, a sharing, 9/11. but you can't no. come in as a criminal prosecutor and say, right. "I want a FISA on this guy because I think it would help my case." That's just right. not. Well, a you basis. don't say that, but, but you, it, it just doesn't you say I want a FISA. It just and, doesn't happen. Yeah. Most they, they, right. they derive from agents who are investigating terrorism and and, and right. classic counterintelligence. I, I gotta say, I mean, both of us have have covered the debates about FISA and counterterrorism and counterintelligence investigations for a long time. And we've been hearing assurances about all these safeguards over the years, time and time again, from justice and FBI people. And then you read a report like this, and it's as though they didn't exist, which is why the ACLU, Shamsi, who's the head of their national security project, did say today, the litany of problems with the Carter Page surveillance demonstrates how the secrecy shrouding the court's one-sided FISA approval process breeds abuse. And she points out this is especially the case for um, Muslims and Muslim Americans who are often the targets of FISA in terrorism investigations. And, you know, it's a reasonable question whether the same sort of deficiencies identified by the AG are taking place all the time, and we just don't know it. It's a reasonable question. I can't deny that in light of the report. I don't have the concerns that this level of mistakes is, is happening on a routine basis. I also would say the vast majority of FISAs are not targeted at, at, at Americans. It's a, it's a whole nother added hurdles to jump through uh, when it's a U.S. person. Well, Carter Page was a U.S. person. Yes, indeed. And those hurdles, (laughs) but the hurdles, I mean a different standard. I don't mean different processes, but there's a a slightly different standard. Okay, last question, and uh, we'll go back to the Russia investigation here for context, because it is important. You were there Mm -hmm. at a critical time period when the Russia investigation is getting off the ground, gets serious. January of 
uh, you get briefed in January 2017. Within a few months, uh, Trump fires Comey. There is alarm within the FBI that he did that because he's uh, trying to shut down the Russia investigation. People at the FBI at the most senior levels believe he may be a Russian asset. You saw everything. You saw all the uh, intelligence on this. You knew what the FBI was looking at. Did you share the concerns that the president of the United States was maybe a Russian asset? First of all, I didn't see everything, and I think the report makes that clear. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking about that. Exactly. Fair (laughs) enough. Uh, Um, All right. So I do not personally think that I ever believed the president might be a Russian asset, a knowing Russian asset. I think that the president's uh, lack of familiarity with foreign intelligence operations, particularly from adversarial states such as Russia, North Korea, Iran, etc., made him vulnerable. And others within his orbit, including Jared Kushner and Donald Trump Jr. and others, vulnerable to being used by foreign intelligence agencies. I'm not saying I think that specifically happened here, but but I would just like refer to things that are very public, like the president standing on a podium and choosing Putin over his own intelligence community in Helsinki, which was, to my mind, as someone who has spent almost my entire career in public service, in law enforcement and national security, was just jaw-dropping. You want to hear some adjectives about my reaction? That was jaw-dropping to me. And that, that kind of thing, I think comes from this, the, the, um, lack of, you know, knowledge and ignorance. And I don't mean that in a mean way, but just like ignorance of the methods used and that we saw a president susceptible to being able to just, you know, choose, Putin over his own intelligence right. community. So well, actually, that does get to one of the issues in the report, which predates when he is elected president, but during the campaign, there's a discussion about whether to give him a defensive briefing to tell him that there may be Russian operatives who are trying to infiltrate or influence his campaign. Mm-hmm. And the decision is made by Prestep and the leadership of the FBI. No, we're not going to do that. Was that the right call? I would need to read those particular portions of the report because I I do know there were different defensive briefings provided to the campaigns. All campaigns need to be under, to understand at some point how they might be vulnerable. These are standard things. And so I think there were defensive briefings provided. In fact, I, I, I know there were. But the, the um, question here was to give the president himself, uh, the, 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 the candidate, the, the, the nominee. Himself. Yeah. And in fact, I think they were talking about, you know, I think some people have talked about just giving it to him. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you wanted to exclude Flynn, to exclude, who was one of those under investigation. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't have a res- response to that right now without thinking more about the exact period of time. I mean, we yeah. saw what the response was in January when when he was briefed on the results of the intelligence community's investigation. Right. Well, let me ask you this question. Was <laughs> to not believe it. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. You know, we know that the uh, inspector general concluded that political bias did not influence uh, this investigation. But I guess there's something a little different from political bias, which is sort of what you alluded to before, which is the way this politician acted publicly, the comments that he would make about Putin, the calling for the Russians to find Hillary's emails, that kind of conduct, I I guess is what you're saying is that that may have kind of colored the way investigators saw this particular case and how 
uh, aggressive uh, they ought to be in investigating the campaign, investigating Trump himself, that there was something about how he talked, how he behaved, how he acted, which is separate from, you know, some kind of partisan bias. Is that a fair statement? Do you well, understand the I, question? I, 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 when I was answering earlier, I think I was really, really trying to answer the question about sort of what, how did I view the president? Like this notion, was he a Russian asset? And I was trying to explain how I uh, um, saw the president as a candidate, um, and frankly still, <laughs> as just uh, not fully aware of all the susceptibilities and the vulnerabilities um, to Russian influence, as well as influenced by, by other foreign um, leaders. But I, I, don't, I don't have any reason to believe that investigators here were more aggressive because of things the president was saying. I mean, it's not a crazy thought. I just don't, right. I don't know that. Right. I, I will tell you when investigators, and this is across the board for you know, street crime up to counterintelligence, when they, when they believe a step needs to be taken and they believe their investigation is righteous and they're doing the right thing, they can be very aggressive and they sometimes, you know, put some blinders on in terms of not seeing sort of like the things that would detract from what they're trying to do. And and this is human nature and we see this across, you know, other areas, not just law and investigation. We see it with investigative right? reporters, present company excluded, of course. Yeah, yeah, right. Of course, of course. But, Do you know John Durham? I don't know John Durham. And really? I know we both have been for prosecutors a long time, but our paths really never have. <laughs> and well, what have, have you... they have they come? Has he or anybody working for him come to you to ask you some questions? I have not talked to Mr. Durham or anyone working for him. Or anybody working for him. You... What did you make of his public statement saying that he disagreed with some of uh, the inspector general's conclusions? He is in mid-investigation. Mm -hmm. And he made a public statement. I was really, really surprised about that. Choice yeah. adjectives for that. Yeah, <laughs> well, very surprised at that. Very shocked, especially from somebody who's been around as long as he does. It's sort of like prosecutor 101. You don't talk about ongoing investigations. Not to mention that we've seen where mistakes have been made in the past on that. And people have been, <laughs> you know, rightfully excoriated for it. So I was very surprised. And it's hard not to look at that and think of it as political. But I also realize he's a career guy and I'm not going to put labels on it until, you know, I get some maybe further explanation, but I, there was no reason for it. I'm also disappointed at the things that the attorney general Barr has said, but he's in a different type of political role. And so I'm disappointed in him, but not surprised. But the, the Durham statement was much more surprising to me because he is actively right now leading an investigation and well, suggesting a different, it, suggesting that Horowitz got it wrong. Well, we will have you back when Durham completes his investigation so you can uh, come up with the right adjectives for uh, your reaction to all that. But uh, Mary, thanks for joining us. Been my pleasure. Thank you. All right. We now have with us Peter Bergen, vice president of New America, a think tank in Washington, and also national security analyst for CNN and the author of Trump and his generals, The Cost of Chaos. Peter, welcome to Skullduggery. Oh, thank you very much. So your book is a brilliant uh, documentation of the chaos of the Trump White House when it comes to national security and foreign policy matters. I guess my first question for you is, is there any method to the madness of Donald Trump's approach to national security? I think the short answer is maybe not. You know, he has instincts 
that are pretty consistent. Like, I, let's draw down from the world. People are ripping us off. We're overextended, overcommitted. So that's consistent. But I think what's not consistent is, say, take a subject like Syria. You know, December 2018, we're going to pull down to zero. Then we're not. And we left several hundred troops there. A couple of months ago, you know, we're going to pull down to zero. Then we're not. We're going to leave several hundred troops to kind of guard the oil field. So I think that there's a consistent inconsistency when it comes to, to particular subjects. But I think, on the other hand, he has certain instincts that he's been pretty consistent about, which is we, we're overextended, we're overcommitted, and we should draw down. Allies are ripping us off. And our enemies like Russia, North Korea, we should kind of embrace to some degree. Yeah. But the... National security advisors, the top people around him in at least the first couple of years of this first term, were largely people who fundamentally didn't agree with him on, on any of these things. On many, on many issues. So uh, take Afghanistan. You know, obviously, President Trump wanted to pull the plug. H.R. McMaster, I think, lost a lot of altitude. I quote somebody in the book saying, you know, he took a lot of chess shots in, during this because the national security establishment, the Pentagon, wanted to stay in Afghanistan, wanted a long-term commitment, wanted a small surge of troops. But it was H.R. McMaster who was really leading the charge. And I think that was one of the key reasons that over time, you know, he and President Trump parted ways because Trump hates being managed. He felt he was being managed on the Afghan issue in particular by H.R. And then on the Iran deal, you know, Mattis wanted to stay in the Secretary of Defense because not only because it was working, as he testified before Congress, but also because it had been negotiated with the British and the French and the Germans, and they're our allies, and we stick by our allies, and we've given our word. And then on Russia, you know, I think one of the reasons HR, the, the kind of occasion rather than the cause of his leaving was, remember the Munich Security Conference where he went out, and it was just after the indictment of 12 Russian military intelligence officers. McMaster characterized that as indisputable proof that the Russians had interfered with the election. And within a few hours, there was a presidential tweet essentially saying H.R. McMaster was wrong. And, <laughs> and similarly, you know, Mattis went to the Reagan Library towards the end of his uh, time at the Pentagon and, and said publicly that Putin couldn't be trusted. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, on, on a lot of the substantive issues, they had disagreements. And these guys were willing to disagree with the president. You've obviously talked to a lot of the generals and the people who were trying to implement national security policy under Trump and running into all sorts of problems with him. You know, the big question is that a lot of people have had, and certainly after Mattis left, it was front and center, will they speak out? Will they talk about what they observed in their interactions I, with the I president. I think in the case of Jim Mattis, the, the short answer is no. And we can say that with some certainty because he had a book tour. People asked him, like us, asked him <laughs> repeatedly. Nine ways to Sunday. Nine ways to, try to Sunday, to get it, and yeah. he just would not go there. And I think with H.R. McMaster, H.R. is working on a book that is going to be a book more, mostly about strategy, but it won't reflect on a sitting president. I don't think H.R. is going to criticize Trump uh, while he's in office. Tillerson's have been a little bit more. Tillerson's been, but I, mean, I think, but, yeah. but I mean, Tillerson's in a different category because he's not a former military, you know, uh, general. John Kelly has said said publicly, for instance, that he told Trump that if he was replaced as chief of staff by a yes man that he would be impeached, which is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there is, 
instead of a team of rivals, there's now a team of acolytes and acolytes, you know, aren't going to tell you the truth about so let me pick up on that point you talk about the flunkies who are now around him and you know on this podcast we're obviously very focused on impeachment which Uh the city we're recording in washington now is uh, obsessed with and i guess my question is when you were reporting this book and you go back to the first year let's say do you see the seeds because ukraine as much as anything else it's it's a national security scandal do you see this the seeds of Trump's conduct in your reporting earlier? Or is it more a function of the fact that that Trump no longer had people around him who would speak truth to power? Or is it some combination of the two? I, I think it's more of a, more of a latter. Uh, I mean, certainly John Bolton for all his, you know, he's a very smart guy. He was against the call. You know, I don't deal with uh, Ukraine much in the book because it, it, it the book closed before this really came to, you know, obviously the, the phone call that happened on July 25th. With Zelensky, but I, you know, by the time I wrapped the book in October, you know, the, the real impeachment focus hadn't come into, hadn't happened. But I will say, you know, I opened the book with a scene in the tank, the tank being the conference room in the, in the Pentagon, where FDR and George Marshall had basically become the architects of the end of the war, because I think the Pentagon opened in 1943. Uh, and so this tank is sort of sacred space in the Pentagon. And I, I think the most important meeting of the president, just to answer your question in a slightly different way, is July 20th, 2017. Basically, Gary Cohn, then the chief economic advisor, H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, Jim Mattis, the secretary of defense, and Steve Bannon, the chief strategist, all wanted to tell Trump kind of what the United States was doing in the world. He didn't really have much of, of a clue. I mean, we have 11 aircraft carriers. What's the disposition on nuclear weapons? What trade agreements do we have? Why do we have 190,000 troops overseas? And so Mattis gave a laydown of all this. Rex Tillerson, then the Secretary of State, also gave a laydown on the State Department side and Gary Cohn on the trade side. And Trump was uncharacteristically silent throughout this, these presentations and then just blew up and said, we aren't fucking doing any of this. The Chinese are fucking us. We're not going to be in NATO. You know, we're, I mean, he just there was a lot of F words and, and shouting about how we were being screwed and we didn't really have allies except Israel and, and the United Arab Emirates. And then he stormed out and it was clear it was a fiasco. It went on for about two hours and it was a total fiasco. And... Afterwards, Steve Bannon in the car back to the White House with Wright's previous chief of staff and with Jared Kushner, the son-in-law, said this is like Lincoln and his generals. Now, one of the reasons that I call this Trump and his generals, there's a very famous 1951 book called Lincoln and his generals uh, that my editor pointed out to me. And I, 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 I mean, it's not... Bannon, I think, was being pretty serious when he said it's Lincoln and his generals. Lincoln, of course, fired the generals who weren't winning the Civil War. Now, Trump, obviously, the stakes are much lower with Trump and his generals. But the, the fact is, is that Trump really laid down a marker with the Mattis, Tillerson, so-called globalist kind of group that it really was going to be America first. And we really were going to try to renegotiate these trade treaties. And we really were going to pull back from the world. And NATO really was a problem in his view. So that, I think that was the beginning of the end for everybody who was part of this so-called axis of adults. But you can't finish that story without letting our listeners know the choice words that uh, Rex Tillerson had oh, for him well, at the I end mean, of that meeting, which you confirmed. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he said that the president's a fucking moron. In fact, he's never denied it. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> wait, wait. Trump has never denied that he's a fucking moron. Or Tillerson has never Tillerson denied, has never that, denied he that he said yeah, it. And yeah, I mean, he, he, yeah. by all accounts, he, he said it. So, yeah, I think that was the beginning of the end. And, and you know, Trump ran his real estate company. Uh, I, I lived in New York in the late 80s. And I remember Trump. Trump hasn't changed much as a person. So like, in two ways. First of all, he took out an ad in 1987 in the New York Times, a full-page ad in the New York Times in 1987, would cost you, you know, a lot of money, saying essentially the Japanese and the Saudis are ripping us off, and they're ripping us off that we need we, they need to pay down our federal deficit. So this kind of idea that our allies are actually ripping us off has been around in tr Trump's head since the beginning. And then, of course, you know, his running his real estate company as a one-man show with a bunch of yes-men and family members is just that's the way he's used to doing business. So he's kind of reverted back to that. Having had a pretty competent group of people in 2017, 2018, they're all gone now. If you look at the cover of the book, everybody on that book, on the cover, except Trump, is now you know, doing something else. Retired, resigned, forced <laughs> out, working at the yeah. Hoover Institution at Stanford. On the ripping off of allies theme, I, I should point out something we talked about last week, which is when you look at the transcript of the phone call with Zelensky that is going to lead to impeachment, before he ever gets to the request on Biden and the 2016 election, he's talking about NATO countries not coughing up enough for Ukraine, that the U.S. Yeah. is getting ripped off because it has to carry the full load. I just wonder, do you think that was part of the mot motivation for the suspension of the uh, military aid to Ukraine? I don't know. But I mean, this is what this is certainly an obsession for Trump. There's a great scene in the book where Angela Merkel arrives in Washington in March of 2017, her first visit to Trump. And Trump is incensed that the Germans only pay 1% of GDP on their defense while the United States pays, pays 4%. And in Trump's mind, Germany owes the United States money. And so he gets his staff to write up an invoice for $600 billion that he hands to Angela Merkel, who says to him, this make, doesn't make any sense. I mean, this is not the way NATO, it's not like we owe you money. There's just an agreement that we will pay up to 2% of our GDP on our own defense spending. No one owes anybody anything. <laughs> so Trump has either fundamentally chose, he fundamentally misreads how NATO works, either because either knowingly or unknowingly. But he's been very consistent about this this issue. And the other thing, he, will, he never ever ever acknowledges the hundreds of British soldiers who died in Afghanistan, the hundreds of French soldiers who died in Afghanistan, the hundreds of. German soldiers who died in Afghanistan and the score and the, all the 40 countries, he just never like that doesn't the fact that they don't all he cares about is the money. So, Peter, you and I got to know each other uh, when all three of us were reporting on counterterrorism, mm. the, the war on Al Qaeda. And it raises your book raises some, some interesting points about Trump and some things that might be surprising to people. First of all, despite all the chest thumping, despite the fact that he said that he was going to not just kill the terrorists, but kill their families, and that he's going to bring back torture and do all these other tough things. Turns out that he's actually not quite as hawkish as he would, I think, want people to believe when he's at these rallies. He's pretty yeah. cautious about military action. He's cautious about military action. He didn't send anybody into Guantanamo. You remember Saipov, who killed eight people in Manhattan in late 2017 on Halloween? So President Trump tweeted, we're going to send him to Guantanamo. And then 24 hours later said, actually, we're not, because actually sending him to Guantanamo. Somebody told him, like, if he goes to Guantanamo, he's likely to spend the rest of his life there and never go to trial because it's, it's, it's the whole the judicial system there is so screwed up. 
So he has actually, yeah, he hasn't used torture. He hasn't reopened, you know, sent, sent more people to Guantanamo. He's actually followed the Obama playbook when it comes to ISIS in terms of using special operations forces, special forces, drones, he, using cyber warfare against the Iranians rather than attacking them directly. So it's just really the same playbook as the Obama playbook when you kind of— He'd hate to hear you say that. But once you strip away—both liberals and conservatives probably don't like— Either to hear, I mean, both sides don't like right. this, but the fact is, there's a lot of commonality between them. Both of them were kind of outsiders from their own party. Obama was basically pretty, you know, wasn't part of the establishment Democratic. He and he was, uh, and obviously, nor was, nor was Trump. And, and they both were elected in their own minds, I think, to get America out of these seemingly endless wars. And I think they attempted it. On ISIS, uh, mm. he was going to an annihilate ISIS. And yeah. to a large extent, he also followed the Obama playbook. Obama had begun that strategy. Yeah. But he did a couple of things that Obama hadn't done that seemed to have made a difference. He upped the tempo yep. uh, of the fight, and he also devolved authority down to the combatant commander level. Um, yep. He took the, the the chains off. I think that was the language that Mattis used maybe in a different context. But that made a difference, didn't it? It did. And I think also, you know, the, the Trump administration, the, the Obama administration was were very, they didn't want to get embroiled in a bigger war in Syria. So they capped the number of troops at 500. And, and they, the number I mean, of, of three helicopters. helicopters. Three helicopters at uh, one time. Yeah. So, you know, the, the Defense Department, HR McMaster, like, you know, they upped it to 2,000 soldiers. They put in a lot more air support. And of course, then they armed the Kurds, which was the really big deal. The Obama administration had debated whether or not to do that because it would piss off the Turks, which it would. Uh, but the fact is you could never take Raqqa, a pretty major city, without a substantial ground force, which was the 60,000 largely Kurdish Syrian democratic forces that the Trump administration started arming with light arms in May of 2017. So I think you can certainly say that the territorial defeat of ISIS they began under Obama, and there was a lot of progress was made. Fallujah fell under Obama. Tikrit fell under Obama. The Mosul campaign began under Obama. But it was completed by Trump, and it was completed in short order because of the very things you mentioned. So as you point out, he arms the Kurds. That's in 2017. That's something Obama had not done at that point. And then in 2019, he betrays the Kurds. Yeah. In fact, it's December 2018. December of 2018, he Which precipitates the Kurds. Mattis' resignation. Right. So explain that. <laughs> Why <laughs> does he arm them and then give a green light to Erdogan well, to I mean, attack them? Part of it is a call that Erdogan made to him on December 14th. And Erdogan said to Trump, you know, uh, you know, you, you said you leave once you defeated ISIS. You've defeated ISIS, so leave. And Trump says, yeah, yeah. Trump says, yeah, yeah, we're going to leave. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know if it's just the last person who spoke to him or he – it's hard for me to kind of disentangle because he's gone back and forth on the issue of what, how, how, what residual force there should be in Syria. One actually interesting thing that I found in the book is the role that Jack Keane has played. Now, Jack Keane is a retired four-star army general, a frequent Fox News talking head. And Trump offered him the job of Secretary of Defense not once but twice, once before the administration began and one, again after Mattis uh, resigned. And in both times, Keane said no. But he's remained a very important voice in Trump's ear. And so on Syria, Keane went in after Trump said we're going to pull out and said, look, he got a map because Trump is like not going to read a briefing book. He's a visual kind of learner. And he showed him, look, this is where the oil fields are in Syria. If we pull out, you know, the Iranians and, or ISIS can get them. 
And Trump said, that's very interesting. I mean, what Keeney said, said is that if you bring Trump new information, he'll listen to it. Uh, this is, and, and obviously, he respects Keene. He's one of the few people he regards sort of as a peer. Um, Keene is from, he grew up in a housing project in Manhattan. And he connects with Trump. And he's able to kind of either through either on Fox News or in person in the Oval Office kind of persuade him of kind of walk him off the ledge of some of these bad decisions. Right. Well, as you point out uh, in one of the briefings, uh, Iraq, he blurts out, shouldn't we have taken the oil when we were in Iraq the last time? And then you well, that's, gently that's, point out that would actually a war, be a war crime. <laughs> Although it didn't seem to stop him because right after the uh, Baghdadi raid, he said the same thing. We're going to take the oil fields and yeah. uh, well, that's hold the, on that's, to them. And of course, that's the conspiracy theory in the Middle East, which is we're only there for the oil. Right. But the other thing is that what is fascinating is there's really so little difference between the private Trump and the public Trump. Actually, it makes me writing books about him kind of difficult because he's been very consistent about this Iraq oil thing, right? It's not <laughs> yeah. like a secret. He says the same thing in <laughs> private that he says in public. Yeah. Um, you know, so he had all these serious military advisors around yeah. him. I mean, people who are really experienced and thoughtful and, yeah. you know. But he also, during the same time, had some, you know, kind of flakier characters around him. And the oh. one, the one. S- Sebastian Gorka. Sebastian. Yeah, I actually, so. so Sebastian So let's Gorka talk about some of priceless. them. So talk about yeah. Sebastian Gorka, but then also talk about Keith Kellogg, who oh, well. I think our listeners don't know a lot about. Well, Gorka's more fun. Let's well, do well, him well, first. Sebastian yeah. Gorka is, yeah. you know, a, is a frequent and bombastic guest or used to be on Fox News. He's now no longer on Fox. I think he's on the Sinclair Network, which is to the right of Fox. <laughs> but Sebastian Gorka is an interesting guy. He has a PhD from a Hungarian university that's so obscure that US <laughs> News lists the 12, 1,250 top universities in the world. This Corvinus University is not one of them. Um, and people who are academic experts reviewed his PhD and said it wouldn't pass muster in an American university. And there's an w- easy way of actually judging that. If you do a Google Scholar, which basically is every scholarly citation of your work, and put in Sebastian Gorka's PhD, you will get precisely zero. <laughs> so no nobody one is, in the world has ever cited his PhD because thesis. because there's not there's no original research in it. So I mean, people cite actual research. So so Gorka, you know, look, I mean, he'd be a like he'd be a one of the other really interesting things is when you look at the financial disclosures that they have to file for the White House. Fox was paying John Bolton $500,000 a year, and they're paying Sebastian Gorka just over 4000 for his appearances on Fox. So they, even Fox didn't think he was the world's most important uh, contributor. But, you know, but he, you know, he and, and Mike Flynn, the first national security advisor, both had books that came out. They both kind of sounded some of the same themes as President Trump, which is like, if we don't, if we don't name the enemy, radical Islamic terrorism, <laughs> you know, our civilization will disappear and it will be, you know. But if we do, that's the ticket. It, but but, <laughs> if, we, but if we name it, it properly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they'll the, go away. They'll and go. actually, McMaster was dead set against that. Well, interestingly, uh, McMaster was dead set against that. And he wanted the terminology Islamist terrorism. And why is that important? It doesn't, it doesn't implicate the religion of Islam in terrorism. It suggests that there is a politicized form of Islam that is being occasionally adopted by terrorists. So, yeah, so Gorka was, in the early days, uh, you know, there was kind of Steve Bannon was in the, the White House. Sebastian Gorka was there. No one could really work out what he did. I mean, a number of people said to me that 
they really wouldn't talk to Gorka because they weren't sure he had the proper clearances about his supposed area of speciality, which was counterterrorism. And so he would show up at meetings and sort of be bombastic, but he wasn't, he, it, no one could work out what he did and no one, and no one took him that seriously. They found him to be, as one p- official said to me, kind of harmless, but they, you know, he wasn't really a, a player in the White House. You may you know, you recall there was a special initiatives group right at the beginning of the administration. Oh, the SIG. The, the SIG, SIG, yeah. Which Gorka told CNN was like for special projects the president wanted. Well, it turned out it was two people going to lunch and after a few months it just disappeared in the National Security Council, which is where decisions typically happen or are considered uh, was really where it had its usual role. And over time, Steve Bannon, uh, I mean, one, one of the interesting kind of tensions in the book is between Steve Bannon and H.R. McMaster, because Bannon is actually a very, very well-read and very thoughtful guy and uh, has and, and, you know, had experience in the world. I mean, he, worked, he was in the Navy for eight years. He worked at Goldman Sachs. He made a lot of money in Hollywood, ran Breitbart. You know, he's a serious guy. And, and he and, and H.R., of course, had written his Ph.D., which turned into a very successful book about Lyndon Johnson and the Vietnam War. And was a war hero in the first Gulf War, where he defeated like this massive Iraqi troop, you know, a set of tanks in 23 minutes. And then was a, again a hero in, the, in the, the second in the Iraq War in 2005, where he was wounded and led the first operations against Al Qaeda in Iraq. So these guys, what they, the, the fundamental disagreement was what to do in Afghanistan. And uh, Steve Bannon wanted out, along with the president and, and some others. And HR, who'd served in Afghanistan, wanted to remain. And I mean, there were a number of, there was almost a, like, the disputes got so intense that, you know, people thought that they might, you know, come to blows in the, in the situation room, which didn't happen. But it was really kind of a, the debate between the America first nationalist wing and the kind of so-called globalist internationalist wing, which in the end, the, the, the generals won. Yeah. Um, well, you know, just hold on before you, because I yeah. did mention Keith Kellogg, and there oh, was yeah, a Keith reason Kellogg. I did, oh, yeah. because there was one choice anecdote, or maybe it was something that his <laughs> aides did frequently, but I just love the scene in your book of them looking through his peephole in his office. Yeah, well, he was the acting national security advisor. Go back to the campaign. A pretty powerful position, right? Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. At one point, yeah. So he was the acting national security advisor after Mike Flynn left. But uh, he's a kind of a, to the extent that he has ideas, he's a kind of America first nationalist. He was one of the very first advisors on the campaign to Trump. Bear in mind that no, there was a huge, so much of this story is about the never Trumpers who wouldn't work with Trump. And so Keith Kellogg was a three-star general. He'd been pretty, he'd been retired for quite a while. Who remember that famous scene where Trump pulls out a paper at the Washington Post and says, this is my, these are my five (laughs) national security advisors. And everybody's like, no one had heard of anybody. <laughs> Wait, was that Papadopoulos? Carter Page, PhD, Page Papadopoulos. Yeah, yeah. good man. Yeah. George Papadopoulos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wait, how do I know those names? <laughs> two, two of them would turn out to be a real problem. Yeah. So, but Kellogg was, so, you know, Trump values loyalty. Kellogg's been very loyal and he plays, you know, he hangs out with Trump, doesn't read briefing books, but nor does the president. And, you know, when he was acting national security advisor, they, you know, the staff would look through the peephole in his office and see that he was asleep at his desk or watching Fox, <laughs> and he was sort of out of it. I mean, at one point, Trump really thought that he might make him the national security advisor, but it was like, it was clear that, I mean, this obviously, H.R. McMaster was infinitely more impressive, and 
Kellogg is now the National Security Advisor of Vice President Pence, which is sort of a House of Lords job because <laughs> Pence has no interest in national security other than the persecution of Christians right. in the Middle East. Right. All right, I got two, <laughs> uh, uh, two areas I want to cover yeah. quickly. First of all, you mentioned Afghanistan and mm. the clash that McMaster had with Trump about troop levels in Afghanistan. Trump's yeah. instinct is to pull out. McMaster actually wanted to increase troop yeah. levels. Now, you've no doubt been reading the Afghan papers that yeah. the Washington Post have has disclosed this week, interviews with U.S. officials over the many years we've been there, all of them saying that basically the public has been misled about the progress we've made in yeah. Afghanistan, and senior policymakers were misled about the progress we made in Afghanistan, which is pretty striking to the theme of McMaster's book on Vietnam, and it also obviously echoes yeah. uh, the, the Pentagon papers. At the end of the day, was Trump right and McMaster wrong? Super interesting question. And I was in Afghanistan last week. And clearly, I mean, let me, let's, uh, the, the Washington Post, piece, none, nothing, my wife and I, we met in Afghanistan. My wife was saying to me, you know, there's nothing in, the, in this story that we didn't know already, in a sense, because like everybody knows that the military tends to put the blessed gloss on things. There is can do, it's going to be better in 18 months. And I think there are big differences between this and the Pentagon Papers. A, there were 50,000 American dead. B, uh, you know, there was a draft. And, you know, I think that if you look at, I, I was there under the Taliban, and everything, there are lots of things that have gone wrong in Afghanistan, and lots of mistakes have been made. But still, you know, half the population can now work. Half the population can now be educated. 70% of the population is under the age of 25. It's one of the youngest populations in the world. Every one of those p people has a phone, is connected to the outside world. None of them want the Taliban back. So, yeah, the security situation is deteriorated. I, I, when I was in Kabul uh, last week, I was traveling around in an armored car. You can't, the, the restaurants that catered to Westerners and the hotels that catered to Westerners are largely gone. The situation is, is is not good, but so but I wouldn't, you know. I, there's a scene in the book where General Dunford, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the most important military officer in the United States, essentially says, "Look, no one likes to buy life insurance, but you buy life insurance <laughs> because it's only the, the only sensible thing to do." And you know what the generals were really offering Trump was life insurance. I mean, to win the war, quote unquote, in Afghanistan. If you look at counterinsurgency theory. Given the size of the Afghan population was 30 million, you're supposed to have one counterinsurgent to every, every 20 inhabitants. Well, you know, that would, you'd need 600,000. So, the, I mean, yeah, the, and the size of the Afghan security force is 300,000. So the military always knew that there was no way of winning. And winning is really the wrong verb. It, we're, what we're trying to do is manage the conflict in Afghanistan so the Taliban doesn't basically take over much of the country, invite in al-Qaeda or ISIS. Which so how many years do we do that? I think it, it, we've been there 17. Well, I think the Trump, I think President Trump has done something that has he he talks about endless wars. What we should be talking about is persistent presence, because we're not what we need for it to work in Afghanistan is a messaging, B, which is sort of we're not leaving, because even if we left one Marine guarding the U.S. embassy, if we said that one Marine is going to be there for the duration, that would have a very big impact on the Taliban, the Afghan government, the Afghan people and Pakistan. If we, if we keep saying we're believing, that, that undermines confidence in, in the whole thing. So I think that we probably will be in Afghanistan. The next time you have me back on the show, 
you know, in, you know, let's say. But you write in, so, no, so no, 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 no. I mean, like, we're going to be in Afghanistan for many, many years in the future because no president, he or she, is going to pull the plug and end up like Obama at the end of 2011, pulling out of Iraq where ISIS comes in, there's a vacuum. Last subject, which we have to cover, an ally who Trump doesn't complain is ripping us off, the Saudis. Uh, (laughs) Now, uh, we just had this terrorist attack in Pensacola this past week uh, where a uh, Saudi uh, military officer gets a gun and starts shooting up and killing people. And Trump takes a phone call from King Salman. Yeah. Uh, Which is smart because the Saudis know this is really a big deal. And they got Salman to call, not Mohammed bin. Not Mohammed bin. Not not the Well, don't you think MBS, it would have been a little problematic since our... CIA has concluded he but, was but, but, guilty but, but, of I, but I think, I think the, the Saudis, like, you know, Al-Jubair, uh, Al who was the ambassador here, who's now the foreign minister, I mean, they know, like, they, they, they move very quickly to make that phone call. They knew this was very problematic. This is the first attack, the first terrorist attack by a foreign national on American soil since 9-11. And it also involved, involves a Saudi, just as, just as it involved 15 Saudis on 9-11. So they knew they move very fast. The Saudis don't usually move fast, as you know. But they, they had that cold going very quickly with Trump. Well, my point is, as, as you point out in the book, yeah. you know, there were all these terrorist attacks, which, frankly, a lot of us have forgotten, in 2016. And yeah. Trump was pounding the table oh. about all these uh, foreigners yeah. being led in, causing these attacks, even though they were all almost all uh, American citizens. American citizens. But here, Trump's first comments are about the regret and concern of the king of Saudi Arabia about what one of his own citizens did inflicting well, terror on American citizens. Well, I'm in violent agreement, obviously. Look, do the thought experiment where it was a Yemen one of the countries on the travel ban list or a, or a Syrian or like, you know, I mean, Trump would be all over it. And, and in fact, he I, I, I was researching this very point just recently. And it turns out that on the campaign trial in November, Trump has repeatedly been citing the travel ban, which are, you know, seven countries, six of them Muslim majority countries as keeping us safe. And of course, Saudi is not on the travel ban list. So look, I mean, they, they there is there's some like deep kind of they they put all their chips in with the Saudis, particularly Mohammed bin Salman, the early thirties, mid thirties uh, crown prince, and you know they're not. It's it's just one of those decisions that I don't see them changing their minds about. And and, and yet, Peter, um, yeah. you have interesting reporting in this book that after uh, the Saudis uh, murdered Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist and dissident, Trump behind the scenes in his conversations with with MBS was actually rather tough. This is new reporting. No one, none of us has ever heard yeah. this before. And it was also very tightly, no transcripts were made. Very few people were listening to the conversation. And so the conversation basically went, you know, the Saudi officials that murdered Khashoggi, they took a bone saw to the meeting, suggesting a high degree of premeditation. And Trump says at one point to MBS, look, I've been in a lot of tough negotiations. I've never taken a bone saw to one of them, which is, I think, a pretty funny line. line. (laughs) (laughs) And then then MBS, and then he says, you know, you've got, we've got to find the body. And, you know, the family want the body. And MBS says something like, you know, well, we gave it to a Syrian. And and then President Trump says, you mean just a random Syrian walking around Istanbul? (laughs) (laughs) 
So, I mean, he could be pretty funny. He also, I think, said something like, <laughs> if, you if you find the bone saw, that'll change everything. <laughs> but he, uh, at the end of the call, he did say, you know, we're sticking by you. And, uh, and why? Why? The I, a part of it, the worst thing in life is believing your own propaganda. And, you know, one of the things that Trump has constantly said, we're doing these massive arms deals with the Saudis, and it's hundreds of billions of dollars. The Russians and the Chinese will get it. Well, if you look at the actual arms sales that have been approved by the State Department, you know, one was for $4 billion after the big trip to Riyadh that he took in, in, in late May 2017. So in his own mind, this, like, there's a huge amount of money here. And, you know, he often doesn't like accept new information. Uh, and I think it's in his mind, you know, these guys have a lot of money. They're buying a lot of stuff from us. And that's great. And so is the book, Trump <laughs> and His Generals, The Cost of Chaos uh, by Peter Bergen. Really fascinating read. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Both. Thanks, Peter. Thank Thanks to former Justice Department official Mary McCord and author and CNN analyst Peter Bergen for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you soon.